If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Well, I am so excited about today. My sweet friend Julia Paxton is with us and she's not just my friend. She is also an amazing young woman with a voice that has recently been on the Today Show, which I just watched it this morning again, and I was crying. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, Julia. You you, oh. you are just doing such an amazing job as an advocate for the Honor Sleeves movement, which was started through Nationwide Children's Hospital. And um, this was introduced by on World Mental Health Day last October. So it's such a treat to have you on this October to speak with us about mental health and your story, which is so, so powerful, and, and your journey, which obviously is, is an ongoing journey, but you have found some amazing ways to, to deal with mental illness and to not yeah. only just deal with it, but to find hope and to lend hope to others. And for those listening, I should also say that Julia also was one of my very first babysitting jobs. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't think you know that, Mary. I but, did not know yeah. that. Good so Julia, to know. Yeah, she is uh, one of three little girls um, that I babysit a few times when I was a teenager. <laughs> And Julia's mom is actually my current counselor. Oh, my goodness. And we come full circle. Yes, yep. absolutely. Precious. So, oh, yeah. so many different connections here with, with my sweet friend, Julia. So thank you for joining us. I know you have class today. Of and course. Uh, you know, life is just so crazy. But you are doing amazing things at such a young age. And it's just a joy and honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I'm honored to be on this show. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know you've been listening to us for quite some time, too, and, and just have supported the work of One Voice. And so it's really cool to be able to kind of turn that around. So, Julie, I would just love for you to just share with us a little of your journey. I know that, you know, you've been a huge advocate and a voice for issues of not only mental health, but but shame and um, just overcoming the stigmas even around, um, you know, body image and eating and all the things in our culture of just mm -hmm. being able to find health and find freedom from the things that have kept us in silence for so long. So, yeah, if you would just share a little of your journey and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So I dealt with anxiety, honestly, since I left the woods. I'm pretty sure. Like, um, my mom even said I was an anxious baby, you know. Um, so it's something that always felt like was a part of me. Mm. Um, and for that reason, I didn't really think that there was another way to be. You know, I thought this was normal. I thought this is what everyone felt like. I mean, every mm. night as a kid, I remember I would go to bed and I would lay there and think about all of the things I was worried about. And, like, mm. that was a part of my sleeping routine. Wow, yeah. um, and if I got distracted and forgot what I was worrying about, I would have to like backtrack in my mind and remember. Um, Cause I thought it was something I had to focus on. I had to think mm -hmm. about because mm -hmm. the thing with anxiety is it can make 
your thoughts feel so urgent. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that was just an active part of my life growing up. Um, mm. And then when middle school came around, um, I started to feel feelings of depression. But at the time, I didn't know it was depression. I thought that it was just another form of my anxiety because I had grown up knowing I had anxiety, that this was a part of me. Mm. Um, so I didn't talk about these new feelings. I assumed that I was supposed to be feeling this way, that maybe this is how everyone else felt. Um, you know, I was just feeling a lot of self-hatred, uh, low energy. I was not motivated to do stuff that I normally liked doing. Mm. Um, and even things like talking took too much energy. Like sometimes I would have a thought about how my day went that like, oh, hey, I could share this with my mom. But then I think about how if I shared that thought, then there might be more questions and that I'd have to tell more about this and that. And that just seems so exhausting. Wow. So then I just wouldn't share some of my thoughts. Um, mm. And, you know, that just only got worse once I entered into high school. And once I got into high school was when the self-harm started. Mm -hmm. um, I was really struggling with self-worth um, and, like I said, self-hatred. And there was just so much going on in my mind. You know, so many of my thoughts, like I said, felt urgent. Mm -hmm. Everything felt like it needed my attention. Everything felt like this was the biggest thing going on. Um, and being alive honestly felt terrifying. Um, and I think that's a thing with anxiety that we don't talk about a lot. It's just like the simple act of being alive yeah. can feel like the world is falling apart when yeah. you have anxiety. Yeah. Um, and the only way I knew how to cope was to harm myself because then it felt like I could put all my issues in one specific area. I could control it. You know, this was mine. It was hidden. This is how I deal with it. And, you know, I struggled with that for about um, three years on and off um, until my senior year of high school when I started to see a therapist um, and my self-harm behavior had escalated to a point where she needed to bring my mom and dad in. And that's when they found out. Um, and I remember <laughs> being so mad at myself because when my mom and I had the talk about it, so I knew that my therapist after the session was going to call my mom. I was so stressed out the mm -hmm. whole day at school, like, oh, my goodness, now she knows. Yeah. Now my world's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down and talking with her, and it wasn't going that bad. And, you know, you know, like she was like, well, um, you know, where has this been happening? I'm like, well, I do it in places where you can't see and like mm -hmm. all that stuff. And then I let it slip that it had been happening for the last three years, oh. which I thought my therapist had told her. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. My mom, I remember my mom too. She was like, what? And I was like, oh no, I right. take it back. I take it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and you know, it was weird having my problems. I mean, and that wasn't even everything, but it was my problems out in the open. Like mm. now my family, and I didn't even know how to deal with it because, you know, self-harm had been a coping mechanism that was keeping me alive. Mm -hmm. But I then started to feel very guilty about doing it now that my family knew. Like, it created this whole other anxiety almost. Like, I was like, well, now what do I do? There was more of a pressure to get better, not from my family, but from myself now that my family knew. Yeah. I felt like. I needed to get better, but I still didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and senior year was when, you know, things kind of just hit a breaking point. I had gone on antidepressants and 
I was having an adverse reaction to it. You know, my anxiety and depression worsened and I was just having constant suicidal thoughts. Um, and suicidal ideation is something I had struggled with in the past, you know, um, you know, just thoughts that would come and go kind of wonder about what it would be like, but nothing like this. I mean, this was like, I could not focus mm. in school. I'd be it trying to take notes. And all I could it was think taking about over mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Like every facet of my life. I yeah. mean, yeah. even trying to have a conversation in the back of my mind, I was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was evident to my parents too, that things were going downhill. I mean, just with the depression and anxiety worsening, like, mm -hmm it was difficult to leave my room because of low energy and the anxiety, everything just felt terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it was on a Thursday. I remember I had an appointment with my therapist and I told her that I wanted to die, that these thoughts were ongoing. They were overwhelming. It was all I could think about. Um, and she brought my parents in and um, I don't know if, even Mary knows this, but both of my parents are social workers. They're <laughs> licensed social workers. They work in the mental health field they have for years. Mm, um, yeah. So we created a safety plan. You know, we felt confident, like, okay, like, you know, my parents know about this. I have a good relationship with them. Like, we can do a safety plan, which meant um, surrendering um, the tools I used to harm myself, sleeping with my bedroom door open, um, all of that stuff. Um, and we did that for about two days, but it was exhausting for everyone, you know, not just me, but my whole family. Mm -hmm. And it was on a Sunday night where it got to the point where I was just done. I was so tired of fighting those thoughts. You know, there was a little part of me that knew that like these suicidal thoughts didn't have to be believed, but that little part was getting exhausted. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I didn't know if I could fight it any longer. And that was really scary. Mm -hmm. You know, it got to the point where I was like, I don't know if in the next day, in the next minute, these thoughts are going to get too loud and I'm going to do something I can't take back. Oh, so mm -hmm. scary. And so, yeah. And so I told my mom um, and she called my aunt, who is also a social worker. Wow. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. We're a whole family of them. <laughs> Um, at Nationwide Children's, um, you know, my aunt, she didn't work in the mental health part of Children's, but she knew people. And my mom called and, you know, asked about their program, what it was like, what we would do. Yeah. Um, and then my mom got the hotline number for them. And we called and I had to talk to the social worker. Um, and we decided I would come in next thing that morning. You know, the ER would be informed of who I was and that I was coming. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember just barely sleeping that night. Um you know, I was a weird mix of being terrified and also relieved and yeah. then also just completely not caring. You know, mm -hmm. I was almost at a part of like, I don't care what happens to me. I don't have the energy to deal with it. And so we went, um, you know, I was evaluated. I had to put on a purple robe, which if when you're wearing purple at children's, you're either a suicide risk or a flight risk. And so if any worker sees someone in a purple robe unattended, they know that something is wrong and that person should not be alone. Um, and I stayed in their um, YCSU for three days, which is their youth crisis stabilization unit, which is kind of an in-between of outpatient and inpatient. Mm -hmm. um, so it's to reduce the amount of inpatient um, admissions that they have to do. You know, it was, it was in a camera monitored room, um, I could walk the halls with my constant attendant or a nurse, 
for a couple of minutes, but that was it. And, you know, all my therapies came to my room. It was very um, intense. It was intensive care. And they switched my meds. And I was starting to feel a little bit hopeful. Um, I felt very validated, I think, for the first time. Um, because my whole life I had spent telling myself that, you know, I don't talk about my struggles. They're my fault. Um, people have it worse. You know, I shouldn't Mm. be this upset about what's happening. Mm. I mean, you know, for the first time I felt super validated and I felt heard. Um, but the rest of senior year was, you know, kind of white knuckling it to graduation of trying to hold on, trying to just graduate high school. It was a lot of med changes, a lot of therapy appointments um, without a lot of improvement. You know, the suicidal thoughts weren't as bad, um, but I developed an eating disorder. Um, I tried to stop self-harming, and as a result, then my behaviors turned um, into disordered eating um, as a way to still get that punishment, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of restriction, a lot of obsession about my body image, a lot of obsession about what I weighed. Um, But I felt like I was failing at having an eating disorder because I was never underweight. So I never told anyone about it. Um, So it went undiagnosed for about two years until I took the step to go see a dietitian at an eating disorder center. Um, um, So that was then another struggle. um, Mm -hmm. And when the eating disorder senior year didn't satisfy that part, then I started self-harming again. But I couldn't get rid of the eating disorder like I thought I could. Mm. You know, with the thing with self-harm and all of that stuff is you start it because you think you're in control of it. Um, but it slowly controls you. So then by the end of senior year, I was struggling with an eating disorder and with self-harm and with depression and anxiety. Wow. So often it's like um, those unhealthy coping. You know, it. Mary, you've talked about this many times when we're speaking, how it's it's like your little friend. It gets you through, you mm-hmm. know, and, mm-hmm. and for many reasons, even when I've written, like, it's like, you know, there's no shame in that. You do what you can because, you know, exactly. you know it's your survival. But like you said, eventually, you know, many times it can get to a point where it's out of control and it becomes controlling you. And then that's where you begin mm-hmm. to find your voice and you're like, I've got to find a way out. I've got to talk about this. Yeah. So the next couple of months after graduating high school, honestly, I mean, I was still unstable, but I was insistent on going to college. Um, You know, in my mind, if I didn't, I would be a failure. And being a failure was one of my biggest fears Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've struggled with perfectionism for a really long time. And I think, you know, that's a common theme with people with anxiety or people Mm -hmm. with eating disorders. It's this idea that failing could mean the end of the world, but failing means you're not worth anything. You don't have anything to offer. And so the idea of not going to college was petrifying. Mm. Um, and that summer I ended up being hospitalized again for suicidal ideation um, at an adult ward. Um, and that experience was terrifying. It was a lot different than children. Um, they, cared a lot more about insurance money than they did their patients. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of treatment going on, but at least I was safe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's what I took away from that. At least I can't harm myself. Um, And then I went to college that August. So that was a month after being released from the hospital. Um, And, oh yeah. I mean, I think my parents were terrified. They didn't show it, but I'm sure they were losing their minds. Yeah. It's like, here we go. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so also while trying to start my very first semester of college, my very first semester away from home, 
I was also a part of a clinical study for TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, because at this point, I had been on about seven different antidepressants, which all either didn't work at all or had really adverse reactions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember at one point I was on Wellbutrin, which is supposed to give you a ton of energy. Um, you know, they recommend people don't take it like later than 12 in the afternoon or else it'll mess up their sleep. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was making me exhausted to the point where I had to take it before bed. And I remember my wow. psychiatrist being like, I have never seen this before. <laughs> and, and I was like, of course. Yeah, you're like, I uh, always thanks. had and like, welcome to my life. Yeah. Um, right. You know, growing up, even with physical things, it's like I never would just get a cold. Like it was one year it was meningitis. And then, you know, it was pneumonia. And then one year my spleen was enlarged for some reason. And we never found out why. So it was always like this scene in my life of like, what is going on? Mm. And so when he said that, I was like, of course. But then I also reaffirmed this idea in my head. I had this narrative that... I actually wasn't anxious. I actually wasn't depressed that this was just inherently who I was. Oh. And this was just how my life was supposed to be. Yeah. And so every time a medication didn't work, mm. I took that as evidence of like, see, this is just how your life is. If you actually had anxiety or depression, it would have worked. Mm. It became um, like an identity issue for you just over uh -huh. and over, like confirming your worst thoughts about who you are and your identity as a person. Exactly. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And what my life was supposed to be like. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and that contributed so to a lot of hopelessness. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I never opened up about that thought, you know, to my therapist, to my parents, but with the TMS clinical study. So TMS is something that they developed a couple years ago um, and it's been FDA approved for people over 21. And it's kind of like a lesser version of electroconversion therapy, um, convulsion therapy, sorry, where, you know, it's shock therapy, um, but this is a lesser version. So you don't have to go under anesthesia. There's no like chance of memory loss. It's just this magnet that taps a certain area of your brain to stimulate uh, to stimulate neurons. Um, and they were trying to get it approved for people under 21. And it's for people with treatment-resistant depression who have tried various medications and nothing's been working. Um, and, you know, that's kind of where I was at in my life. And so I decided to be a part of this clinical study. Mm -hmm. um, which again is crazy to me that I even tried that while being in college because it was a half hour drive. Wow. <laughs> and at the time I, oh yeah, I had lost my psychiatrist because he was with children's and I was over 18. So I was no longer being treated by him. Um, and my therapist had um, ended her practice and was going to be a guidance counselor. So I all of a sudden went from having a bunch of support to not having any while also doing a major life transition and being a part of a clinical study. I mean, it was like my Ooh. perfectionism at its greatest high. Mm. I just feel like, nope, <laughs> nope, nothing impacts me. I can still uh, do everything. Yeah. I'm not going to recommend that for any listener. <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, keep going. I would, <laughs> I would never, ever recommend it. No. Um, and so I was struggling a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. I didn't want to admit it because I had been trying yeah. to get better, you're you know, stuffing it all down, it you're working. working hard, you're, you're doing all the things you think you should be doing, but it's still, yeah, well, it's still a struggle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't know what to do. So I thought I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but you know, being away from home, my eating got a lot worse. There was just 
more anxiety around food, more anxiety of the idea of eating food. Um, and with TMS, it can give you headaches. So they recommended I take Advil before each appointment. And this was every Monday through Friday I went. So I was taking a lot of Advil on an empty stomach, oh which, again, would not recommend to anyone ever, um, which resulted then in a month into school, I got stomach ulcers. My stomach was bleeding. Um, and it is the worst physical pain I have ever been in. Um, and, you know, that's when I knew I had to leave school. Um, and I just was so angry at myself. I mean, I was so ashamed of who I was that when I dropped out of school, I temporarily disabled my Instagram account because I didn't even want people looking at my page. I didn't want as if somehow they would even know. But in my mind, it was like, people are going to know. People are going to see, like, I just want to be hidden. Mm. I was so ashamed that I had to leave mm. school. Mm. Um, you know, so at that point, I was recovering from a bleeding stomach. I was living at home without therapy. I had to drive now um, an hour and 15 minutes to TMS every day because I was still a part of the study. I was still trying to hold on to that. Mm -hmm. And that lasted, I think, for about three weeks. And then I remember one day um, driving home from TMS and calling my mom and just breaking down. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, this is not working. I cannot do this anymore. You know, yeah. I was like, maybe this TMS will work, but it's not working fast enough. Mm -hmm. Like I need relief. Yeah. And so, you know, that night I went home, I told her I didn't want to talk. I just went to bed, you know, but the next morning I was like, we need to do something, you know, something has to happen. Um, Cause the suicidal thoughts were the most intense they had ever been. And it was such a different, different experience than before, because with both other times that I was hospitalized, it was because a medication was making my symptoms worse, but mm. I wasn't on any medication this time. Oh, um, yeah. So I didn't even know what to do. I was like, I don't know what there even is to fix. Mm -hmm. well, and uh, you felt like it was you like tried I everything too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and so we called the psychiatrist that was the head of the TMS study. You know, I went in and I was completely honest. You know, I was like, I want to kill myself. Um, I have a plan. You know, I just feel completely hopeless. And he said, okay. And he walked me down a floor from his office into an inpatient unit. Mm. Um, I just walked right in. Um, Got your purple robe and, and went on your way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Gave up my shoelaces, hair yeah. ties. Oh, yeah. And I just remember my mom came in with me and it was um, dinner time around then. So we got a tray of disgusting hospital food um, <laughs> and we're eating. And I was like, mom, you can, you can go if you want. Oh, and the thing was, she was supposed to go on a conference that weekend. Oh yeah. Um, but mm. now I was in the hospital and it was um, two states away. Uh -huh. And like, she was like, do you want me to stay? And I remember looking at her and I was like, mom, like, this is not my first rodeo. Right. Like yeah. you are good to go. Like I've done this before. Mm. It'll be fine. Mm. Um, and I remember talking to her about that, Julia, and she was, it oh, was so hard. Yes, because she was uh -huh. saying how, you know, she was also at a growing point and not being an enabler and to give you uh -huh. the freedom to do what you needed to do and still live her life exactly. and how hard that was to leave. Uh huh. That's powerful. Well, yeah, there was, there was a part of me that was relieved that she was gone yeah. because, mm -hmm. you know, people pleasing was a gigantic part of my life, a mm -hmm. gigantic part of my perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And 
as much as a comfort as it was to have my mom there, Mm -hmm. she was also, um, I think, the biggest person in my life who I wanted to get better for. Mm -hmm. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of the times I would rush through the motions hoping that I would be better so I could be better so that I wouldn't be hurting her anymore by hurting myself. Um, But it doesn't work like that. Healing doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so her being gone actually gave me a lot of the space to just be exactly where I was, yeah. Um, which was broken and hopeless and terrified. And knowing she would um, and, you still know, be there, you know, when you got mm-hmm. through that I mean, hard place. Exactly. You know, I would talk to her on the phone every day. My dad and younger sister came to visit every day. Um, yeah. But that space was necessary, I think, for both of us. Mm. Um. And I think that might be surprising for some people because, you know, my mom and I have never had a toxic relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we have a wonderful relationship. I mean, Nicole, you know, my mom, Um, Mm -hmm. you know how she is. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have been blessed with incredible, incredible parents, but that space was still necessary. Right. Right. Um, Well, and it's similar to my mom. My mom and I, you know, we've always been very close and I'm very grateful. She's a hero in my story. But I've needed her yeah. to let me go, you know, and and, exactly. and to create that space. And and I also I think about um, for you to be able to be an advocate now, like you needed to to walk through some of this alone and to know what it, mm-hmm. it means to get to the other side. Yeah, the hard truth is that other people can't heal for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I know if my mom could, she would have done it all for me, you know. So right. I didn't have to, but it's right. just not how it works mm-hmm. um and that hospitalization was the first time i was ever completely honest at where i was at i mean it was the first time like i completely broke down in front of my treatment team i mean to the point i mean it was like one of those heavy cries where like you can't talk afterward like you try to talk and your breath is just like <gasps> and so my social worker w- would have to communicate for me to the rest of my treatment team you know that was the wow. first time that i had ever let myself be seen like that uh-huh. um because you know i was supposed to be the kid from the healthy family i mean i had social workers for parents the recovery should be like you know easy peasy we should be done with this already um yeah. you know and that was this persona i had put on of like I'm in a healthy family. Yeah. I'm emotionally literate. Like I right. can do this. And well, and that's another piece to time. it too. Don't you think? Like I, I relate to that also where you don't share the honest, honest truth because all of those reasons of your family and, you know, exactly. I'm, I am very close with my mom and everything's beautiful. It should be. So you don't go there. And like you've said in many ways over and over, like sharing your thoughts, your openness, truth telling those have become your saving place but when you're exactly. when you're supposed to be in this great family and things really are good but there's this internal struggle and the secret shame you're holding in that's where it begins to eat you alive <laughs> so it's like you need yeah, space I mean, from the, the the beauty and the goodness in order to get really raw exactly exactly um and yeah like i mean i've written about it on my Instagram a lot because Instagram has been one of the places where um, I really like to share my story Mm -hmm. um, of just how terrible shame is and how deadly shame is. Mm -hmm. You know, for most of my life, I listened to everything shame told me to do. And it wasn't until I did the exact opposite 
of what Shane was telling me to do that I started to find my healing. You know, I went I to a that. partial hospitalization mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. after inpatient at that hospital and, you know, in group therapy and all of that stuff, I just started to be completely open about my story and sharing the things that I logically knew didn't make sense, but they were still holding power over me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think one of the hardest things too about being emotionally aware of what's going on um, is that you can identify when things are illogical, when your thoughts are illogical, but sometimes that doesn't make them feel any less terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to still talk about it. A lot of, I lived my life for a long time of like, I know this is illogical. I know it doesn't make sense. So I'm not going to talk about it, uh-huh. but we have to talk about things. You know, you have to put it out in the open. You have to hear yourself say it and you have to bring people in to help you understand where the thought is coming from, how to go about it and what your emotions are trying to tell you. Um, You know, you can't do it alone. You can't do it in your head, which is Mm -hmm. what I've been trying to do for so, so long. Yeah, Um, just how much power there is in just outward processing. You know, if it's a good friend, if it's a therapist, if it's your journal, you know, but just the Mm -hmm. power of releasing that from being hidden, trapped inside of your body, and it's wreaking havoc on you. That is a very powerful word, Julia. Yes. And, you know, my mom and I talk about how this partial hospitalization program saved my life. Um, Not because of, I mean, the skills I was being taught were so valuable, um, but it wasn't because of that. Um, It was actually because one day in group therapy, um, a sexual abuse survivor was talking about an aspect of her story. Mm -hmm. And when she was doing that, it triggered memories of my own story that I had repressed for a very long time that I had told no one about. Um, that were contributing to a lot of my shame um, and a lot of my depression. And it was in that program that I spoke my truth for the very first time to my case manager. Um, You know, this was 12, 13 years after it had happened. And it was the first time I ever identified myself as a survivor as I had that I'd ever said it out loud before. Mm. Um, Yeah. And, you know, following that was a lot of, hard trauma work and outpatient therapy, Um, you know, doing EMDR, processing the shame that comes with experiencing sexual abuse. Um, And for me, I was sexually abused by a friend who was only a year older than me. And I struggled still, I still do sometimes to this day with the idea that that doesn't count as sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had parents who were very proactive about that stuff you know Absolutely. Um, I mean Nicole should be honored she was even allowed to babysit us as children. I'm my mom was I know. so <laughs> right my mom was so and dad you know like we rarely had sleepovers um, you know yeah. we didn't go over to people's houses my mom didn't know their parents and, you know so in my mind I always had to be on the lookout yeah. for a creepy older man who maybe was a stranger or was like, Hey, I lost my dog. Can you help me find it? You know, in my mind, that was what it was. I was supposed to look out for not a boy who was a year older than me, who I had grown up with. Absolutely. Um, And so I felt like a lot of it was my fault. I felt like it didn't count as traumatizing because other people had it worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are lies that you have needed to speak out loud. And then hear the truth back to you, not just once, Uh but you're going to need to keep hearing that it wasn't your fault and it was wrong and it was abuse. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, 
almost two years since I first, you know, shared that story with someone. Um, and since then, it's been a continuous um, journey of saying it out loud and, again, identifying right. the things that I feel shame about. Because the terrible, awful thing about shame is that it keeps you from even identifying that you're ashamed about something. Because <laughs> right. it can be so heavy and it can be so intense that you want to keep it in, that you're not even going to say, I feel ashamed about ABC. Mm -hmm. You're just going to keep it in. You're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so a huge step for me was even saying the words out loud of, I feel shame about this mm -hmm. um, and identifying that before even getting to a place where I no longer feel shame or I no longer feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. You know, first it was just identifying the lies and acknowledging that I believed those lies. Um, you know, it's a lot of work to get there, but first you have to acknowledge, you know, I know that these might be lies, but I'm believing them and they're causing me a lot of shame and I don't know where to go from here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's a crucial starting point is just identifying that. And yeah, so for the past two years now, you know, I've been only in outpatient therapy. I've been sharing my story over Instagram, um, the Today Show with Nationwide Children's um, in my life has become something that I never, ever thought it would be. Um, you know, just absolute freedom, even in the thick of it, even if I'm struggling with anxiety, even if I'm struggling with my PTSD or depression, there's still freedom there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have the choice of how I heal from what has happened to me. And, you know, that is where I find a lot of my freedom. Um, you know, I'm almost two years free from self-harm. I um, am in a strong place in recovery from my eating disorder. Um, you know, just my last dietitian appointment, she asked me if I could come and speak to their um, IOP patients, their intensive outpatient um, patients one day, which all of that is insane to me sometimes because the things that Shane told me, you know, I was actively seeing a dietitian. I had an eating disorder diagnosis and I still was not convinced I had an eating disorder. Mm, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and to then hear from someone who works with them with eating disorders that not only did I have an eating disorder, but now I'm in strong recovery from it. Um, you know, sometimes I'm just blown away of where my life has become. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I always say that my life has just become this relentless movement forward. It of really just, has. you know, you yeah. have to. You have to stick around no matter how hard it gets. And that's why I share my story um, wow. because it does get better. Yeah. And I know what it's like to think that it's never going to get better. And I know what it's like, too, when you have evidence that it's not going to get better. Mm. You know, a, a big part of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is like, you know, evaluating your thoughts and how they impact your emotions and finding evidence for your thoughts if you're having an irrational thought. Um, mm -hmm. And one of my things was, you know, when I was stuck in this hopelessness and, you know, I had evidence that it wasn't going to get better. You know, I had been in therapy for over a year. I had antidepressants that weren't working. You know, I had been mm -hmm. hospitalized and yet I was still suicidal. You know, I had all of these things that could count as evidence as to why it wasn't going um, to get better. But, you know, I think a large part of me that fueled my recovery was my stubbornness. Mm -hmm. I have been so <laughs> stubborn since I was a baby. And there was this tiny part of me that was angry, was angry that there were people out there who didn't struggle with this and were able to live mm -hmm. a fulfilling and happy life. Mm 
Yeah. And I wanted that. And it I was unfair that I didn't have that. I think that's really common and, for a lot of survivors, yeah. even that I hear. It's like they are completely convinced. Just like you said, you had evidence. And so there's yeah. where do you find hope when you're so convinced that there is none, you know? But the stubbornness, yeah. goodness, we've got to find our voice and, and be pissed exactly. and, and be stubborn and fight exactly. and fight to get to the other side. Because like you said, if you can stick around, there is another side to this. There is another side. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everything is better, but it's different. Mm. And, it, and that difference is so good. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think a big part, especially for survivors, is allowing yourself to be angry. Yeah. You know, I think we demonize anger a lot, especially anger in women. Um, you know, that's just not something that we allow or something that seemed like appealing or appropriate. But, you know, I found a lot of my healing and a lot of my motivation in my anger. Um, angry that things had happened. Um, and, you know, but I'm, you know, just that anger validated that it wasn't my fault. You know, I wasn't angry at myself anymore. I was angry that these things had happened. Mm -hmm. I was angry that I had depression. I was angry that I had anxiety. Um, and that's empowering. I think anger can be an incredibly empowering emotion when it's dealt with properly. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that is a huge part of my recovery was allowing myself to feel whatever came up. Mm. And um, then talking and just about radically it. accept it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What I like about that, the On Our Sleeves movement um, that started last year and that, you know, you're basically the voice for it now, which is so cool, um, <laughs> is is that I heard someone say, because kids don't wear their thoughts on their sleeves. And a lot exactly. of what you're sharing in your story is just that that thing when, you know, you were you you feel like you are you feel like everything that's going on inside is on the outside and everyone knows and no mm -hmm. one's doing anything because they don't know what to do about it but they don't especially in children exactly. and so if, if exactly. you don't ask if as a parent or as an adult in a, a child's life if you're not asking questions then they're not going to be telling and it's not on their sleeves like you said that the freedom and the healing comes through talking about it you've got to let that exactly mm. yeah and you know that is one reason too that I was so passionate about um partnering with on our sleeves because again this was anxiety was something I struggled with since I was a child you know mm. the sexual abuse happened when I was a child um right. and children don't even have the vocabulary to talk about it even if they wanted to Absolutely. you know right. you know you can't articulate as a kid what anxiety feels like especially if it's something you've known your whole life mm. um, and that's why I love that this movement is about um, not just empowering children who are struggling but their caregivers um, and all the adults who are in their lives empowering them to talk about mental health to talk about things um, and another thing I love too is that it you know empowers caretakers to know that like it's not always their fault if their kid is struggling. Because okay. um, I think that's a lot of shame that parents can feel. For sure. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, On Our Sleeves is a movement about talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that is so important in killing shame um, and finding healing, um, especially with kids. Yeah. You know, that mental illness in kids is, it's so hard um, mm. and it's so difficult, but there is a way 
to get through it. You know, as a child and as a family together, there is a way to find healing and to talk about it. Mm. Absolutely. And in the end, children who and adults who are struggling with mental illness I, and, and, and just mental health struggles in general, you know, I think it's so important to realize that it's not like there's something wrong with them. They're not broken. They're beautiful. Uh-uh. And they're some no. of the most amazing people in the world if we would just be able exactly. to look, look beyond the pain and the struggles that they're dealing with and be able to look at what they can contribute mm-hmm. to the world, what we can all contribute in that exactly. way. Exactly. Mm. Well, your life has truly become a relentless movement forward and just you have been dedicated to bringing hope and putting a voice to something that people haven't been able to talk about don't know how to talk about and at this young little age of 20 and just two years out of finding your voice from the abuse it's just absolutely amazing Julia you're gonna do more and more great things and I am just taking a little front row seat and it's really fun (laughs) But would you oh, say you. yes, would you say in in kind of wrapping up our time together today, the main things that have really helped you have been persevering, you know, being willing to again speak your mm-hmm. truth, constantly seeking therapy. When one didn't work, you tried another, right? And the same with That's meds. That's right, exactly. The same with meds. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was believe forcing myself to believe that this wasn't my fault. You know, the depression, the anxiety, the abuse, um, even when it didn't, that thought didn't seem real, forcing myself to believe that and then forcing myself to believe that there was healing out there for me. So if that meant that something didn't work, well then I'm trying the next thing Mm -hmm. because I know that healing is out there and I know that it's possible and I just have to find the thing that works for me. And what um, so, was yeah, it that exactly. gave you that belief? Because I think a lot of those who get to that dark place, it, you don't believe that there's mm-hmm. anything that will work. Um, one thing that really helped with that was my um, outpatient therapist in high school. Um, she told me that depression was a liar. Mm. Um, and, you know, that really stuck with me of just forcing myself to believe that these things were lies, no matter how true they felt. Um, and a part of it, too, was separating myself from the disorders that I had. Okay. Because um, sometimes if you, there was a time where I identified as the depressed person, the anxious person, you know. Um, yeah, and it was a part of my do. identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And But it's so hard to find healing if that's a part of your identity. You know, because I had to learn how to, you know, right. defeat these things. And I couldn't do that if that's a part of who I was. That's so true. You know, so yeah. it was radically accepting almost that there was a part of me in there that wasn't my anxiety, that wasn't my depression, that wasn't what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And that part of me deserved to find healing mm-hmm. and had healing out there for her. You know, it was this radical acceptance of like, that is what my life will become. Um, and, you know, it was a very, very small part of me at the time. Um, but it was just holding on to that little bit of hope, holding on to the fact that my therapist said my depression was lying, even though it didn't feel true. Mm-hmm. It was holding on to that mm-hmm. and holding on to the idea that there was something better out there for me. 
Yeah. I think that parallels, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the lying, the identity stuff. I think it really parallels even just the the sexual abuse because for me, exactly. You know, I grew up feeling like the same thing, like that was the identity and my healing could not come until I separated that and know like this mm-hmm. is who I am, but then this thing happened to me. I didn't ask for exactly. it. Exactly. I didn't deserve it, exactly. but it happened and now it has created this new narrative for me. So separating me from what happened or, you know, separating you or Mary from the things that, you know, you feel like you're struggling with on a daily basis, that I think is very key to the healing process, no matter whether it's anxiety, depression, sexual abuse, domestic violence, whatever. Exactly. Well, thank you, Julia. It it is so important for us to all know that it is possible to get better and that there is freedom Mm -hmm. out there. We have to fight for it. Exactly. One thing that I always try to let people know is that, yes, my story is unique and that, you know, I am my own person. My experiences are my own experiences, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's not unique in the way that I am now recovered and that I found healing. You know, there is Mm -hmm. not something special about me that allowed me to get healing. You know, healing is something that is out there for every single person. Um, Because, you know, I remember when I was in the thick of it, seeing stories of recovery and being like, well, that person, um, you know, must have something about them that makes them able to find recovery. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe it wasn't as bad or maybe, you know, they had this, this or that that led to their healing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's not true. Healing is something that's possible for everyone, um, no matter what experiences, what disorders, whatever you have. I truly believe that it's something that is possible for everyone. That's great. I think that that's very helpful for so many people. You know, you can hear this amazing story from one extreme to the other, but then feel like it discounts you. But that's not the truth. And we have to continue to mm-hmm. speak truth to our own story and our own journey and seek the help that exactly. we deserve. Thank yeah. you, Julia. Thank you. You are of a course. hero. Thanks for having me. We are cheering for you. <laughs> and for those listening, you, you must just Google Julia Paxton Mental Health. And the first hit you'll get will be her video that was on the Today Show earlier this year. So thank you so much, Julia. Enjoy your day. Of we love course. you. Bye. One in five people live with a mental illness and 50% of all lifetime mental illnesses start by age 14. The On Our Sleeves movement addresses these staggering statistics by providing educational resources, advocacy tools, and philanthropic opportunities at onoursleeves.org. And of course, you can check out our resources at iamonevoice.org.